0: Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to the Roy Green show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime.
1: Knock that fire down, 19. Copy captain, let's move!
0: ABC Thursdays.
1: Firefighters were family.
2: Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. Get down fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge.
1: I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen.
2: Station 19, all new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast.
0: All right. Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining us on the Roy Green podcast. Peter McKay, you'll hear him, former conservative defense minister, on his talk with lawyer Marie Hennon, Admiral Norman's lawyer. Also, David Butt, former prosecutor, now criminal defense lawyer, with more questions about the Mark Norman trial. The former premier of British Columbia, Ujal Dussange, and journalist and author Rahil Raza. Take a look back at Justin Trudeau saying, there's no core Canadian identity. Ken Coates... With a new feature, what do we tell our kids? University or trades is how we'll begin. Professor Coates from the University of Saskatchewan. So many questions, not enough answers. So many questions and not enough answers. What, I just say it again? The Admiral Mark Norman case. Evidence presented to the Crown by the defense included interviews Marie Hannon, the lead lawyer for the admiral, had with three former conservative cabinet ministers, as well as former staff members in the government of Stephen Harper. Jason Kenney, Aaron O'Toole, and Peter McKay are the former federal ministers. None of the ministers were interviewed by the RCMP in their initial investigation of Admiral Norman. Mr. McKay is a former minister of uh, justice and attorney general and the former minister of national defense, and he joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Mr. McKay, thank you very much for taking the time.
2: Good afternoon, Roy. It's great to be back on your show. How's wow. everybody and everything in
0: Hamilton? We're doing great. Right across the country. We're glad you're with us because there are questions that need to be answered here. And, and you're just sure the man to are. do it. you're You're a former prosecutor, federal attorney, general. Um, were you surprised the charge against Admiral Norman was dropped this far into the case over new information? And as you know, It said information provided by you and your former federal cabinet colleagues to Marie Hannon may have been what did it. It may
2: have been, Roy, but to answer your question directly, was I surprised? Not really. I was surprised at the way that the entire affair rolled out, but I was very suspect from the beginning that this trial would ever come about because of its proximity to the election and because of the political hangover that existed. From the outset i've been going back to november december of 2015 when the government came to office and they started essentially trying to overturn everything the previous government had did including this important navy procurement to bring about uh, a replenishment ship a a ship that was able to refuel our our ships at sea and early on they decided that they were going to try to do that to roll it back And and, uh, so there was a political element to that at the very beginning. And then when the story leaked and they had to recalibrate and and go along with the contract, they were looking for somebody to blame this on for the, the bad publicity that they got in those early days. And I think that that is the origin of the entire persecution as opposed to prosecution is how I would describe it of Mark Norman. I worked closely with him. As you would expect in the Department of National Defense, I chaired the National Security Committee, so I had regular contact with him. And he was not only well-informed and professional and patriotic, but he was very honest and full of integrity, and he would speak truth to power. And again, I don't think that goes over very well in the current government. And when they wanted to make an example of somebody, who better to put a chill over the entire public service than to go after somebody like Mark Norman.
0: You know, there was a visceral connection among Canadians with Admiral Norman. People who perhaps hadn't heard his name before learned more about the story and felt, and I heard it on the air, increasingly that here was a petty and vindictive attack on a man who had served this nation extremely well, and the attack was completely undeserved. And my question for you is, another question I have for you, should the RCMP have spoken to you and your former cabinet colleagues, are you surprised that they didn't um, during their investigation of Admiral Norman? And do you think their conclusion about the Admiral might have been significantly different had the RCMP spoken with you during the investigation?
2: Well, the short answer is yes, and I should qualify by saying that they did speak to me, but on a very narrow issue of a single email exchange that I had with Mark Norman while still in government. But they didn't come and see me. They didn't probe any further than that particular narrow issue. And it is surprising that they didn't speak to other members of the Conservative government, including Jason Kenney, now Premier Kenney, members of the, the Conservative staff that would have been involved in procurement and a lot of the work that we were doing at that time as it pertained to this particular shipbuilding contract that went to Davies, and it it may have led them to perhaps conclude that there wasn't sufficient grounds in the first place, although it's a a different threshold, a, a lower threshold. But the Crown obviously came to the conclusion that they were not going to be able to secure a conviction and stayed the charge, which means it cannot be reinstituted, they cannot bring the charge back, but I, I question, again, very much, and I would add to your descriptive words, malice and venal, and an attempt to somehow make an example of a person they felt had leaked information and embarrassed them. And that, of course, is not the motive for a criminal charge. And their motive is, is clearly now more suspect than Mark Norman's, because what would he have ever gained from, from doing this had he done it? Mm-hmm. Nothing. It was all intended, Roy, as you know, to ensure that the men and women in uniform had sufficient equipment that canada was able to contribute internationally that our ships could take part in important missions and guard our coastlines, that was mark norman's intention then as it would be now
0: without a supply ship we're just a coastal service
2: that's right and even that is sometimes in question if we can't service those ships at sea because it isn't just fuel of course it's other provisions and uh, we were in a bind because the two ships the hmcs protector and preserver were both deemed unserviceable one caught fire and the other simply was beyond its, its repair and best before date and so there was a real urgency which is why it was an unusual uh, process that we went through a sole source contract but we'd also just completed the national shipbuilding procurement strategy and awarded two enormous contracts the C-SPAN on the West Coast and Irving on the East Coast. And so those shipyards were working at capacity, and the proposal that had come from Davy was the right one. And by the way, uh, Admiral Norman, in in selecting and and being part of that uh, decision, was correct. The ship came in on time, on budget, which is unheard of. Probably in the last 50 years, we've never seen such a successful procurement.
0: Peter, can you think of something that you might have said to uh, Ms. Hennon that uh, Mr. Kenny or Mr. O'Toole may have said that swung this case?
2: Well, I, I've, I've thought a lot about that over the last uh, number of days. One possibility, and again, I'm, I'm not entirely convinced that it was anything I or, or Jason or anyone else said In particular, I think it may have just been the preponderance of of evidence that they didn't have uh, to try to prove the charge, including the necessary requisite mens rea, that is to suggest that there had to be some motive that they could prove beyond the act of legal information that would have proved that Mark Norman would have benefited somehow, which he wouldn't. But to answer your question, the possibility that... Mark Norman would have been acting with government authority and would have had every reason to be in communication with Davey and would have, again, been authorized with cabinet authority given his close association with that file. There's also another theory that I'll share with you briefly, and that is that when the, the leaks first emerged, and there's a very interesting sort of mysterious figure named James Cutmore, who was a CBC reporter, now working... Inside this liberal government. He was apparently the recipient of the leak who first made it public. Well, there were 72 people that had the information. They've since charged somebody else with the same leak. I think that when the information itself first went public, Mark Norman didn't have that particular information and wasn't in the room when the discussion took place. But, you know, to the start of your show, the RCMP should have and could have availed themselves of a lot more information that was available. And I say it was available because the defense counsel went out and did their due diligence and spoke to people like myself and others and and did what one would expect the RCMP to have done in a thorough investigation. So there's still questions, as you, you pointed out. There's questions as to motive, how this uh, case was handled. The disclosures were awful, and I think that that also had a lot to do with why the Crown's case collapsed. And what was in that mysterious 60-page document that came from the PCO, Privy Council Clerk Michael Warnick wrote this and handed it over to the Prime Minister, all 60 pages blacked out when it was disclosed.
0: Yeah, that was certainly a a moment, wasn't it? Uh, And what concerns many people, I, I believe certainly concerns me, is that much of what goes on in, in the legal community, in the courts in this country, is based on precedent. And uh, do I have a—I'm not a lawyer, so I, I'm just sort of throwing the line out here. Do, do I have a reason to be concerned? Not personally, yes, I, but—
2: I, I think you do. We've, we've seen instances now of political interference, and obviously the SNC-Lavalin case is still smoldering, and evidence of direct interference, potential obstruction of justice where there was pressure being brought to bear to change the decision of the Attorney General. But more concerning was the, dis- the effort to change the mind of the Director of Public Prosecutions. Our government put more distance between the political branch of government and the prosecutorial branch of the Justice Department by creating this separate office. And not all provinces have that. Our province of Nova Scotia has it, Quebec, I believe, and, and possibly one other. and That is of concern, that a citizen, and in this case, Mark Norman, in spite of his his title and achievements and rank in the Canadian Forces, is a private citizen, and the entire weight of the justice system, the resources of the government were brought down upon him. The potential for collusion between the Privy Council Office, which is the bureaucratic arm of the Prime Minister's office, the judge in the case singled that out. As questionable between the strategy that was happening. And if in SNC, you have a well connected, well funded company where the prime minister's office was deeply involved in trying to get a better deal for them through this deferred prosecution. That really goes to the underpinnings of our entire system. And when I hear the spokesperson for the Chinese foreign ministry stand up and start making moral equivalencies and comparing their system to ours, we're in real trouble when the OECD singles Canada out as a country that they're watching, the Transparency International, the World Bank, and the trouble that Bombardier may now be in, this goes to the fundamentals of rule of law, the way that our prosecution service has to work. Just like judges, politicians shouldn't be calling prosecutors or attorneys general on these cases that are before the courts. And so a lot of damage, and I think much tarnish has occurred
0: yeah, Peter, in the last I, number of years. I'd actually forgotten about the OECD situation. You're absolutely correct, and, and the World Bank. Uh, put us on a, on a watch. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Good talking to you again. My pleasure,
2: Roy. Always. All, All
0: the, the best. To you. Peter McKay, former Attorney General and Minister of Justice in Canada and the uh, Minister of National Defense. And then the news was overtaken by the... Uh, Admiral Norman case, uh, Peter McKay, former cabinet minister in the Stephen Harper government, a former attorney general and former minister of defense, national defense. He and his former co-ministers in Mr. Harper's government, Jason Kenney, now of course the premier of Alberta, and Aaron O'Toole, were interviewed by the admiral's lead counsel, Marie Hennan, but they weren't interviewed by the RCMP when the RCMP was doing their first investigation, their substantial investigation of the admiral. And the word is, or the speculation is, that something that was told to Marie Hennon by Peter McKay and Jason Kenney and Aaron O'Toole may have been what caused the prosecutor to say, no mas, no more. And I'll be speaking with Peter McKay in the next hour on this program. I like Peter a lot, Um, former prosecutor as well. There's a lot coming up on the show. Former uh, Major General Louis Mackenzie will be with us. He uh, was the commander of the UN Protection Force in Sarajevo and knows Admiral Norman quite well. There's a lot lot coming up on this program today, so I hope you'll stay with us. And uh, we're going to begin with our good friend David Butt, criminal lawyer, former prosecutor, op-ed writer for the Globe and Mail, and uh, David Butt has argued cases before the Supreme Court of Canada, and uh, David, it's always good to talk to you. And this is a this is a fascinating case, and I don't think we're anywhere near the end.
3: No, that's right. Uh, certainly, the prosecution uh, has come to an end, but
0: uh, the questions persist. So let's let's just talk about what. What I mentioned a minute or so ago, and which is being reported, and that is that three former cabinet ministers in the Stephen Harper government, as well as empl- or workers or employees in that government, were talked to and spoken, and interviewed by Marie Hennan, but not by the RCMP, when they conducted their initial investigation into uh, into Admiral Norman. Uh, can you put that into some context for us? Is it possible that what was said to Marie Hennan by the three former ministers? in fact, caused the prosecutor to say, that's
3: it? Well, certainly that's possible. It's difficult to know precisely what uh, led the uh, prosecution to conclude that there was uh, no reasonable prospect of conviction, but it was uh, um, additional information, and uh, based on media reports, it does appear that some of that additional information came from the defense. So you can certainly see that possibility that some of that information emanated from the interviews of uh, those three uh, former cabinet ministers.
0: Now, uh, the government has the obligation to provide all the evidence it has very early on to the prosecution, right? And then the prosecution provides that information to defense counsel, which uh, you and I had a conversation before before this program, uh, which allows then the defense to build a case for the charged person. Is that how it goes? Yes, that's right. <clears throat> the Supreme Court of Canada has said that,
3: excuse me, it's uh, fundamental that the defense be provided all the investigative material so that they can respond to the charges against them. And that uh, is presumably what happened here. And then I think that the defense uh, certainly noticed that there are some gaps in that information provided.
0: Yeah, and I just mentioned that interview that we did on the 24th of March, in which there was a complaint that the federal government was dragging its heels and providing information that the defense required so the prosecution probably didn't have it the defense didn't have it and miss hallen was uh, was was threatening or had s- said she would in fact call gerald Butts and michael uh, uh, wernick uh, to uh, to testify in open court we've come a, we've come a long way in a short period of time in this case
3: yes indeed and and uh, there's a, it's important to know that there's two potential shortcomings when the Uh, disclosure of the uh, prosecution's case is first provided to the defense. The defense looks at it for two different things. One, things that uh, the investigators might have gathered but not provided to the defense. And then secondly, what the investigators may have actually overlooked. And it appears that there were problems with both of those in this case.
0: Uh, in, in In this case, in the Admiral Norman case, it also appears investigators didn't release everything they had, the RCMP, or the government withheld information for its own reasons. Is that a fair assumption?
3: That seems to be, uh, certainly the position of the defense, and that seems to be the case. Uh, And again, when you're looking at an investigation, uh, if the investigators gathered material or looked up material, they do have an obligation to uh, provide that to the defense. Now, there can be very rare exceptions where there's uh, confidential informants and so on, but uh, those exceptions are quite rare, and generally speaking, everything that the investigators use in their investigation should be provided to the defense.
0: Is there an issue for the RCMP that they did not speak with the former cabinet ministers, and they provided information? We'll go back to the beginning of the interview, our conversation. Is there an issue for the RCMP that they didn't speak to these former cabinet ministers who provided Marie Hennon perhaps what she required in order to get the prosecutor to say, we're done? Yeah.
3: Yeah, there's certainly uh, um, two different views on this. I I mean, what appears clear is that the investigators did not gather certain information, which the defense did, and which they provided to the prosecution, which led to the charges being withdrawn. So clearly, that was significant information. And, uh, you know, one doesn't know why that significant information uh, wasn't gathered by the investigators, but it's certainly a question worth asking.
0: Have you run into these situations, David?
3: That, that's something that defense lawyers always do, and it, it's important uh, in the exercise of their professional obligations to ensure that the prosecution evidence, first of all is provided um, in its entirety to the defense and secondly that there's nothing important has been overlooked so yes it does happen you know nobody's perfect investigators and prosecutors by and large do a good job in this country but nobody's perfect mistakes do get made and that's why the defense job of reviewing the disclosure of the prosecution file is critically important because that's when those errors come to light
0: one of the uh, one of the points in our off-air conversation was and and i I've raised this with you in the past on the air people ask and not in this case not in admiral Norman's case but in other cases how can a defend defense lawyer possibly defend such a person and you know we may be talking about a paul bernardo or someone of his ilk how can anybody anybody in good conscience defend such a person
3: yeah i I think it's a it's a really important question and and people automatically jump to the conclusion that if you defend somebody you somehow endorse their values that's not the case at all Uh, what a defense lawyer does is a very different job of looking at in, in and in this case is a great example the adequacy of the crown investigation And if it's flawed, or if people have made mistakes, those mistakes need to be identified. And those are the kinds of things that don't really depend on endorsing the actions of the accused person,
0: but they're critical
3: to getting the job done right.
0: Back to David Butt, criminal lawyer in Toronto, former prosecutor. And uh, Mr. Butt has argued cases before the Supreme Court of this country, as I've told you. David, uh, one thing that's troubled me, and uh, Amanda Connolly tweeted out last year, that Justin Trudeau spoke publicly about Admiral Norman's case winding up in court. He did that in April of 2017 and again in February of 2018, last year. And uh, Mr. Trudeau used the word inevitable, like the case is going, Mr. Admiral uh, Norman would inevitably find himself in a courtroom Um, That was a month before the admiral was actually charged. Does that raise any concerns about prime minister's interference with federal prosecutors, maybe sending a message to the prosecutors that the prime minister expects the admiral to be charged criminally?
3: Well, I think in this case, uh, certainly we have Ms. Hennon's comments that uh, there was no political interference in this case unfolded uh, within the norms of the justice system as it should be. So I think that's... uh, Uh, Frankly, Ms. Hennon is in a far better place to be the judge of that because she's had the closest, most inside view of this case uh, of of anyone. So I think that her comments to the media that there was no political interference are pretty much conclusive. Now, having said that, as a general matter, um, is it a concern if if politicians start weighing in on on criminal justice uh, processes? Yes, that is is always a concern. It doesn't appear to have uh, created a problem in this case. But uh, one does have to, if one's a politician, always be careful about uh, making comments that might be perceived as influencing uh, judicial processes.
0: Yeah, I mean, if you're the prime minister and you're saying this man is going to find himself in a criminal court before he's criminally charged, a prosecutor might see that as um, an inducement to follow the, the wishes of the man in the corner office of the PMO. Just a... It's it just it doesn't it doesn't feel right. But let me ask you this: What questions do you say? Do you feel? Does your experience tell you still need to be answered in this case?
3: Well, certainly there is a difference of opinion about the relevance of, of certain information. It appears that the investigators uh, did not feel that that certain information was uh, worth gathering, and yet when the defense gathered it and provided it to the uh, prosecutor, uh, it appears to have played a role in uh, staying the charges. So I think that's a question that uh, really has to be answered. Um, and any time, frankly, that you have a criminal investigation that also involves people like uh, Vice Admiral Norman, who are very close to political cabinet ministers and so on, there's, there's always a concern that uh, just the closeness of that fact pattern meant that there's some inappropriate uh, interference. Again, um, Ms. Hennon doesn't think that's the case, and she probably knows better than any of us. Uh, But that's
0: always a concern in a case like this. Okay, so now to the issue of the charge being stayed and not dismissed.
3: Yes, a stay is a device that the prosecution can use, which basically puts a case on ice for a year. And if they don't revive it within that year, then the case is is over uh, conclusively. Uh, So it's not unheard of that, you know, before the expiry of that year, a stayed case will be revived. Very often, though, that's, uh, that's not the case either. So we'll just have to wait and see in this one.
0: Does that surprise you at all, that when the prosecution says it's done, when the government says, yes, we'll pay your legal fees, Admiral Norman, that uh, that it's a stay and not, a, not an outright dismissal?
3: Uh, yeah, it, that's, that's a, an exercise of discretion. The prosecutor can use either the stay or the uh, outright uh, withdrawal of the charges. My thinking is that in a case of this level of importance, one doesn't want to make a mistake. One wants to proceed as cautiously as one can. So the, the information that they had certainly led them to, to think that a stay was appropriate. And I think that, that what they're doing now is just giving themselves a little bit of time to take a very close look, not be under any pressure, and decide if indeed that stay is, is appropriate. So it's, it's, a, it's a cautious step in a, in a high-profile case like this.
0: Okay. Always great talking to you, David. Thank you so much for the time. My pleasure always, Roy. David Butt, criminal lawyer in Toronto, one of the very best. Now, before all of the Admiral Mark Norman criminal case being stayed, exploded across the news this week. What had been raised on this program by three current and one former premier, namely that Canada is a nation facing divisiveness as well as concern for the Canadian Federation, Uh, is a challenging subject that got a tremendous amount of response. So at the beginning of the week, I thought I want to go back to the beginning of the Justin Trudeau time in government when the then new prime minister told the New York Times that there is no core identity and no mainstream in Canada and that Canada is the world's first post-national state. Is it this approach and belief of Justin Trudeau which has steered this country into the increasingly divided nation we seem to have begun become which premiers tell us we're facing i'm a an immigrant to canada came here when i was 13 my two guests are immigrants to canada and they are raheel raza and uh, ms raza has been on this program many times journalist public speaker for interfaith and intercultural diversity she's the author of their jihad and on my jihad she addressed the canadian parliament and received a standing ovation. Always great to speak with you, Rahil. Thank you so much. And Ujjal Dussange is the former premier of British Columbia, now former Liberal federal minister, or former Fed- Liberal federal minister of health, and an immigrant from India, Ms. Raza from Pakistan. Uh, premier, I always will use that honorific. Once you're a premier to me, you're always a premier. So it's good to talk to you. Thank you so much for taking the time. Good to talk to you. Now, so we're all three immigrants, and we all love Canada. What's Absolutely. what's your view, Mr. Dossange, of Mr. Trudeau's statement to the New York Times shortly after becoming Prime Minister of this country? Uh, was that one statement? Was it three statements? Uh, is, does it play a role as in, in the divisiveness that we talk about in Canada today?
4: I actually had written a blog on that at that time, which had been picked up by some newspapers across the country, because I disagreed with it, um, because I believe that Canada does have a core identity, and that core identity is defined by our values that we have, which the vast majority of us share across the country. Um, and And I believe that that if the leadership of the country publicly states that we have no core identity, it in fact gives sustenance and oxygen to uh, the hyper-identity politics that we see um, often in Canada and other countries. And uh, and I believe that uh, Mr. Trudeau had done a great disservice to Canada. Uh, I came to Canada in 1968. Um, you know, Canada uh, is a better place today than it was in 1968, I'm sure. We have improved in many ways. But one of the things that, that worries me is that... Uh, there is this um, uh, um, acute emphasis uh, in some sectors of society over our identities, which we try and make exclusivist rather than inclusivist. Um, we try and and um, focus on our differences rather than on our commonalities, um, and uh, and there is this uh, sense of competitive offendedness in the country. Where if you say something that I don't like, I'm more offended than anybody else ever was offended, rather than engaging in a debate uh, in a civil fashion where we can argue our differences.
0: Mm-hmm. Very true. I mean, this is exactly the way I feel. And Ms. Rosa, a I, I caller said, I remember this to the show shortly after we had been speaking about Mr. Trudeau's remarks to the New York Times that a country without a common denominator isn't a country. That a country is based on a common denominator. That a common denominator is the glue that binds a nation together. What do you say?
5: Well, I believe that what Mr. Trudeau is doing is dividing us into tribes, and you know, in this case, uh, and and playing identity politics. So, uh, you know, in this case, one from one tribe has been given special attention and special care. And I will not be politically politically correct when I say that that is. My community, the Muslim community, with ill advice from some of his advisors, Uh, Mr. Trudeau has been pushing this unreasonable accommodation. Now, what happens is that in a tribal situation, this causes a reaction, and the others feel that they have been segregated, there is resentment. And how can we ever forget that this country was created on a Judeo-Christian ethos? Uh, I mean, I'm a Muslim. I've come from a a Muslim country, but I knew coming here, this is not an Islamic country. It is based on a Judeo-Christian ethos. But, of course, there have been uh, mass immigration from Muslim countries. And if Muslims would like to be part of this ethos, then they have to contribute rather than constantly demanding. So, you know, this idea that there is no core identity is very, very uh, offensive to me because the core identity of Canada is its freedom, its freedom of speech, its freedom of thought, freedom of religion, uh, freedom uh, of of gender equality. And if one segment of the population wants to suffocate that, then everyone suffers. And so, uh, you know, Mr. Trudeau is obviously confused and baffled by all of this, but he continues to play the identity politics when it's really very simple.
0: Let me ask you this, Raheel. I, I'm not. I'm. I am not i i, I, I do not know what he means. When and I've read a fair bit about it, and I'm confused. The more I read, the more confused I become. The first post national state. What is he talking about? Uh,
5: you know, it's completely cooked to me. I'm. I'm so sorry. I do not understand.
0: that. <laughs> oh, good. It's not just me.
5: <laughs> no, it's not just you. I thought it was just me, but I do not.
0: What I about you, Premier? What do you say? Well, do you understand what that means? Post first well, post national state. I, I, can, I can
4: try and understand it. I think, I think there is a view in the world that uh, pretty soon we should have no borders defining countries, um, and therefore um, that you become part of the world order, you're a post-national state. Um, I think that was his attempt to say that Canada, that comment about Canada's back, um, be more concerned about the world than we perhaps had had been. I think that was the impression he was trying to convey with that uh, that particular statement.
0: Let me take a quick break and when we come back, I, I want to ask you about this the issue of divisiveness. I've spoken with uh, the Premier of Saskatchewan, Scott Moe, with Jason Kenney just before he was elected, Premier of Alberta. Blaine Higgs, the Premier of New Brunswick, has been on this program. Um, and uh, Brian Peckford, the former Premier of uh, Newfoundland and Labrador. And they've all talked about their concerns about divisiveness in Canada. Blaine Higgs, after attending his first First minister's conference, was concerned about the, uh, the, the strength of our federation. This is not something to be ignored. And then the Angus Reid poll showed a really significant um, Western alienation. This is something we have to get past and get around and overcome if we're going to have a Canada that we all I, identify with and, and I think understand. And when the prime minister says there's no core identity, no mainstream in Canada, and that he sees this country as the first post-national state, something we need to talk about. So let's get back to our guests, former premier of British Columbia and former liberal federal minister of health who immigrated to this country from India, Ujjal Dusange, Rahil Raza, journalist and public speaker for interfaith and intercultural diversity she's the author of their jihad not my jihad she immigrated from pakistan me i came from england and switzerland a weird combination eh? talk about humorless people they put the you put the two groups together that are the least that have the least amount of humor in the world you've got me um (laughs) yeah i'm not the guy you want to get into a conversation with the party premier um, <laughs> let, let me ask you, uh, we, we've spoken with, uh, with with other premiers. We spoke with uh, Premier Scott Moe of Saskatchewan, who when uh, Mr. Horgan of British Columbia, Premier Horgan of British Columbia, was in the way, uh, got in the way of the uh, TMX uh, and uh, and was able to do so, Premier Moe said, when this sort of thing happens, we have to ask, do we have a country? Blaine Higgs, the premier of New Brunswick, after attending his first premier's conference, first minister's conference, talked about the Federation and said, we have to decide whether Canada is a nation or a notion. Mr. Kenny has talked about Bill C-69 being a constitutional challenge and a divider. We keep hearing, and then there's Western alienation that was uh, found when Angus Reid did their polling of Western Canada. We keep hearing about the divisiveness in Canada, and I'm hearing it from callers. What's your sense of that? i you know Canada, i learned um by being around the cabinet
4: table federal cabinet that um you know our 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 federation is rather fragile that's a given um but at the same time um the notion of western alienation that had disappeared over the last several years the last several decades um has reappeared um and there are some legitimate reasons for it. Um, for all the premiers that you've spoken to, they have some legitimate concerns. For instance, let me let me say, although I support TMX wholeheartedly, um, but you know, giving giving um, Quebec a veto on Energy East and not giving British Columbia the same veto on TMX, uh, not pursuing Energy East with the same enthusiasm as pursuing the TMX um it's those kinds of actions that um that appear blatantly political um that on the part of the federal government that actually give rise to a sense of resentment and anger and alienation um in in the west be it in Alberta or in British Columbia or Saskatchewan
0: yeah um rahil did you worry about about this country, about the glue that binds us together? Do you have any concerns? Yes, I was
5: just going to mention that my biggest concern is the future of our next generation. What sort of an example, what sort of a sense are we giving our children? Because, you know, if they're going to be absolutely, uh, you know, without this sense of identity that this is a country that they belong to, Mm -hmm. then we have a huge problem. And this identity politics that is being played for the sake of votes and for the sake of appeasement is not helping our future generations, our younger generations, those who are the children of immigrants, and those who have embraced Canada and Canada's values. And we need to keep on talking about this, because, you know, in that vacuum, uh, they can lose their identity. I'm concerned about that. And already, you know, that those uh, young people who are children of immigrants uh, are already facing issues of identity and culture. Yeah,
0: you know, when the prime minister says there's no core identity and no mainstream in Canada, I would argue that our just our history is 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 our uh, is is our uh, uh, our core identity. That, that all the things that have shaped this country, gotten us to where we are now, and will take us beyond where we are now, isn't that what creates Absolutely. our core identity? Absolutely. Um, how Canada came to be, uh,
4: what its constitution was, what it has become, what our values were, the kind of struggles that we've been through, um, whether, you know, it's the concentration camps for the Japanese and, and, and uh, you know, persecution of the Germans or whether turning away of the Jews. Um, whatever history, um, you know, the... the the Winnipeg General Strike, um, the, the trade union movement, um, our struggles with health care, unemployment insurance, our struggles with, with all of the things that define Canada and make Canada what it is. That is our core identity. Core identity isn't some airy-fairy dance or music that we bring into this country or we had here when we got here. Uh, it, it is about values, it is about history, it is about the evolution of the country through those struggles that define the country.
0: Um, I have two minutes here. Let me just ask you each to give me your thoughts on the Admiral Mark Norman case. old uh, Raza, what do you say about that?
5: I think that this is something that the whole country has been watching very closely, and you know, it is a big, big wake-up call for all of us. Uh, to look at this very closely and see what's happening right under our notice.
0: Does it does it concern you?
5: Everything concerns me. Yeah, yes. everything concerns you,
0: <laughs> Of course. No and, and rightly I'm so. A
5: Canadian. Now you see this is the thing, when I go to vote I don't vote as an ethnic Canadian. I'm a Canadian. I can vote for Canadian values. I vote for Canada. Mm-hmm. I think like a Canadian and this is why it's so important not to have this divisiveness. Uh, you know, this is not about my ethnicity. I am Canadian, 110%.
0: You know, that's the that's the bottom line, isn't it? Yes. That's the bottom line. Premier, what do you say about the Admiral Norman case?
4: I believe um, it is a travesty. Um, what happened with uh, Admiral uh, Norman, um, he's owed an apology, an unconditional apology. Um, and, of course, along with that uh, reinstatement, uh, in whatever uh, reasonable capacity he can be reinstated in uh, but i saw some similarities between um, um, sNC Lalon and and this particular case um, and uh, and those similarities were with, with the, the, the dogged pursuit um, of of the case um, in in one case it was the dogged pursuit of trying to influence the attorney general in the other case it was uh, just sort of you know, pursuing this particular case against Admiral Norman with blindfolds on and sitting on documents and history of the matter—if um, you know—which if they looked at, um, would have um, uh, stopped this case uh, from proceeding in the first place or stopped it midway long before okay. it stopped.
0: Premier Ujjal Dussange, former Premier of British Columbia, former Federal Health Minister, Liberal Health Minister, and Rahil Raza. Uh, author, journalist, and her book is "Their Jihad, Not My Jihad." Thank you both so very much for joining me. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. All the best. Uh, it's just something I thought. You know, when we were talking about the divisiveness in Canada, it just seemed to me at the beginning of the week that we should take a look at that core statement made by the Prime Minister uh, when he first took office, and that is that there, uh, there is no, uh, there is no uh, core identity, no mainstream in Canada, really. When it comes to careers. This is the time of year when uh, high school graduates start to look around to see what's available to them. And in many homes across the country, there's only one choice, whether it's made by the parents or the students, sometimes in tandem, and that's university. Is that the right way to go? Well, uh, there's a a book. One of uh, Professor Ken Coates' books is What to Consider If You're Considering University, New Rules for Education and Employment. And the professor, Dr. Coates, is the Canada Research Chair in Regional Innovation at the Johnson troyama Graduate School of Public Policy at the University of Saskatchewan, and uh, Professor Coates has been a guest on this program on numerous occasions, and this has been a subject which has really connected with people across Canada. The response has been insistent, and for for long periods, I would re- I receive emails telling me and informing me about what's going on in those homes. And, and with families and the choices they're making. Just a few lines from the overview of the book, a degree is no longer a passport to success. In today's job market, going to university used to be a passport to future success, but that's no longer the case. For some students, it's still a good choice that leads to a successful career after graduation, but for many, their degrees are worthless pieces of paper. Choose the wrong program, and graduation is more than likely to lead to disillusionment and debt then a steady paycheck and uh, add to that that we're told that one in every five new jobs in the next five years will be trades related. Uh, Ken, that takes us to what we've been talking about with you for a long period of time and that is you have a choice to make, make the right choice and and I, and, and you, you you suggested we have this, uh, this uh, series of programs and I, I love the idea under the heading of what do we tell our kids. So good to talk to you again.
6: It's always good to talk to you as well. I I think the idea of sort of focusing on on this question of what do we tell our kids is essentially what parents say to each other from the time they're in grade eight all the way through the time they're 30, Um, and maybe even beyond. Uh, Parents are are paranoid about this. Young people are paranoid about it. Guidance counselors wrestle with this all the time. What do you do? What do you tell your kids? What's the great path forward? And there's no easy answer. It's not simple. Uh, There's no guarantees. Uh, you, you'll obviously have a better chance if you get into a very uh, uh, highly technical, highly skilled program where there's a huge amount of demand and um, so certain kinds of engineers have a, an endless number of job opportunities it seems, uh, but other engineers do not. It all depends on the marketplace and a whole bunch of other things. So we should focus on this question of, of what do you tell your kids because I'll tell you that's what families are worrying about right now.
0: So what do you tell the kids when it comes to the discussion about Will it be university or will it be the trades? And by the way, I just looked back at a program that we aired in March with Catherine Swift, former chair of the or former CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, and uh, she received a tweet from one of her followers. And you may remember this: He tweeted, "My oldest is a brilliant student, but also great with his hands. Try as I may to tell him trades are a good way to maintain a great quality of life, it's like I'm talking to a wall." Is the school system still teaching this, or looking down on tradespeople?
6: Well, I, I think they are. The world's looking down on tradespeople, and that's a great tragedy. Um, and I think we really have to fix that. Is it the schools a little bit? Is it parents absolutely? Is it society as a whole? When you hear governments talking about preparing for the new economy and figuring out how to how to sort of prepare people for the job market of the future. Um, they almost unerringly turn back and talk about how what university degrees should we focus on and what university program should be a priority. Um, that's so sad. Um, not that universities are bad. Universities are absolutely the right choice for a very large number of students. But, you know, the big problem is you can't make a choice if you don't know what the choices are. So if you are coming out of high school and you've never considered an apprenticeship program, you've never gone on sort of a, a, a work shadowing sort of opportunity to see what the, what the actual work is like, Um, If nobody's introduced you to the servings and the offerings of a local community college, or even introduced the concept of a polytechnic, where you can get a degree, uh, but it's a very different kind of degree. It's very work-focused and very technical in nature. Um, If you haven't got a list of the choices in front of you, you can't make a choice. Um, You can just follow the crowd. We always talk about this as following the swarm. Join all your high school friends all going off to university without a great deal of thought. Um, or you can actually make sure you know what all the opportunities are. Uh, The trades are terrific, a terrific opportunity. Uh, Just take one example. If you look at the enormous amount of construction going on in homes in the major cities in this country, uh, there's a huge need for construction workers. If you add to that, the work that's going to come over the next 20 to 30 years, as we take the outdated infrastructure we built in the 50s, 60s, and 70s and bring it up to contemporary standards, there will be no shortage of jobs for tradespeople. Um, But, you know, unfortunately, young people aren't exposed to these and we're sort of left with the impression that, that, you know, the good jobs are get in with the government where you can get a good secure position, a high pay and really good benefits or something like that. And when kids think, you know, what what, what job do I really want? They have in the back of their minds Apple, Google, these sort of high tech companies with their foosball machines and free pasta uh, in the cafeteria down the hall. Not that that's how most high tech companies operate, but it's the kind of image people have. So we don't have a good sense of the workforce, and we certainly don't have a good sense of what the workforce is going to look like in 2030 or 2040. And so it's hard to plan for something if you haven't even started thinking about it.
0: I remember you saying in our first broadcast about this issue that, in, in many cases, it's just the swarm. Um, there's an entire group of kids or a year of kids who graduate from high school, and some of them choose a certain degree course. And they all go there. It's like the, like, the, like the soccer field with the six-year-olds. They all chase the ball. And, and, and at the end of the uh, three or four years, what have they got?
6: Well, they have the same credential their friends have, or at least 60%, 70% of them have the same credentials. The others followed the swarm and sort of went off the cliff because it wasn't a good match for them. And so they went to university in a particular program and sort of dropped out and kind of disillusioned by the whole process. Um, that's the easy way to go. Right? Um, University is the easy option. Uh, governments like it. Uh, the universities do a great job of for, you know, attracting people to their institutions and talking about what how great it can be, and it can be great. Um, uh, call polytechs and colleges don't uh, engage in the same level of advertising and the same level of sort of encouragement that you actually get. Parents like it. Uh, one of the things we, we haven't talked, I don't think, so much uh, on the show yet, right, is that um, new Canadians who come to Canada often see the chance to go to university for their children as being a major reason for making the effort to come here. They really want to have their kids to have a chance to go to university, it's, a, it's a, you know, the great pedestal, it's the wonderful opportunity, and in many countries around the world their children wouldn't have the chance to do that okay. if they came from more humble backgrounds. So you put all these things together and you get this mass migration out of high school into universities without a lot of thought, then you actually select, you know, the programs. Well, here's one other big trick. If you haven't taken grade 11 and grade 12 mathematics, if you haven't got a sort of decent science background, when you apply to university, you find that probably half the courses or half the programs are actually cut off from you. I'm, I'm a it's great great field of study. Um, you can go to you, know, you can to get a history degree without necessarily having a math background or a science background. But you know a whole bunch of business programs require advanced mathematics, all the science-based programs, a lot of technology-based programs. And you discover that kids haven't started thinking about it soon enough, and when math got hard in grade ten, they opted out of it um, and aren't really prepared for the options that are there. So you know you can't be paranoid about the careers. And, and there's good reasons why people should be very thoughtful about the, the future for their young, young children in terms of, of where they're going to go, where they're going to work, and how they're going to get a, a decent income. But you can't be thoughtful about it if you haven't given it a lot of thought. Um, and that's our, my major co- question and concern. You know, how do you prepare your young, young children, meaning high school age kids, for a future if you, don't, if you haven't started thinking about what that all means?
0: So now, who carries the ball then at the family table? Is it the uh, is it the high school graduate, or as this father wrote, uh, he will not listen uh, to anything. My oldest is a brilliant student, but also great with his hands. Try as I may to tell him trades are great, a great way to maintain a great quality of life. It's like I'm talking to a wall. Who carries the ball in the conversation? Is it the parent? Is it the student? If if there's an impasse, somebody has to make a a decision.
6: Yeah, they do. And and you're used to be the question of sort of, is it the grade 12 student? If you're going to start having this conversation in grade 12, it's too late. Because by then they've made a whole series of decisions that block them out of certain opportunities and, and turn their attentions in one direction. It really is everybody's collective responsibility. I would love to hear politicians speaking as enthusiastically about college trades and the apprenticeships as they in polytechs as they do about universities. Uh, they're sort of got Stars in their eyes about the universities, mostly because so many of them, the politicians at the federal, provincial, municipal level, have all been university graduates. So they look and say, "Well, it worked for me, so it'll probably work for you as well." And we don't have as many tradespeople in the in the. The, the, the political profession as we probably should. Um, there are some and they're very, very talented at this. Um, but I think, I think it is the politicians have to provide leadership. Uh, the, the schools have to make sure they're, they're doing a lot of that kind of preparation. Uh, in Western Canada, we've got a lot of schools that drop their shop programs. Uh, they're expensive. It's much cheaper to have you know, sort of standard basic science, basic humanities, social science kind of classes. Well, if you don't get a chance to work with your hands, if that the son of that, that the man who who wrote to you uh, his hasn't had a chance to work in a shop and work with a metal lathe, how's he going to know that's an exciting thing to do?
0: Let's try this, Ken. Why don't we, uh, I'll take a break here, and uh, we'll open the phone lines at 1-800-263-2428. 1-800-263-2428. We may only have time. For two or three phone calls, but is there a debate going on in your house, and in your life right now, or have you experienced this uh, fairly recently, um, whether it's going to be university or the trades? Is, is, is that something that's being talked about, discussed in your home? Is there an impasse between the student and the parents, whether it's a good idea for the student to pursue the trades or the university? Uh, If that's an issue in your life or has been recently, 1-800-263-2428. Share your story with us. It'll be interesting to hear what Professor Coates has to say about it. And, uh, yeah, we'd like to hear the story. Professor Ken Coates with us from the University of Saskatchewan. He is the Canada Research Chair in Regional Innovation of the Johnson-Suryama Graduate School of Public Policy, Co-author of What to Consider if You're Considering University, New Rules for Education and Employment. Phone lines can immediately explode it. As soon as we raise the issue about choosing between the trades and university and what it creates in families across the country, it's instant. Trudy's in Edmonton. Hi, Trudy. Thank you for the call. Hello. Hi. Um, what What's going on? My, in...
1: my son is uh, just turned 18 in January and graduated now from high school, um, the employment situation here in in Edmonton is so bad that economically for the last two years he has not been able to work and put away money to go to school. I became handicapped four years ago, so anything that I had in savings has been depleted to look after my care because now I'm in a wheelchair. Um, and because he's still living at home, they made crazy rules about kids taking student loans and it's not available to a lot of families with a little bit of income. We don't live above, uh, my income is under 24000 a year now. Is, are, you,
0: are you trying to make a choice though between post-secondary, between university and trades?
1: Yes, so uh, to that, so he decided that he would uh, look into landscaping. He got on right away in a landscaping company and was moved to be a foreman for the summer and he's considering now trades for the rest of his life because he's making a thousand dollars a week and he doesn't have to go to school
6: well ken Uh, a very good story (laughs) ma'am i'm really sorry about the illness and And it's a very good example of the sort of the multi-generational trauma, financial trauma that comes with those kinds of things. Um, uh, Your son's shown a lot of resolve and determination, and that's really great to see. But it's also interesting that it was these circumstances, unfortunate circumstances, that sort of opened his eyes to a really good opportunity. Um, Yeah, my my, husband
1: is in the trades, a different trade. My husband's a journeyman, uh, red seal carpenter, but he's been out of work for over two years now. There's no work here
6: for Uh, tradespeople. And sadly, that's the situation, particularly for young people in in many parts of the country. Ordinarily, right now, young people's unemployment rates are actually quite low, um, in a sense of being sort of around 10%, so twice of what it is for the population as a whole. But but that's not as bad as it's been at other times. But finding a good job is really hard. And and as your conversation shows, the real challenge is finding something that turns
0: into a career. Yeah. Let me get another caller on quickly here in Brandon, Manitoba. Scott, go ahead, please. Hi, Roy. Hi. Hi. yeah. Thank you for taking my call. So
2: I just wanted to let your listeners know um, when you're picking a skilled trade, be careful about the skilled trade that you pick. Like, say, in, in my home province of Alberta, if you're an electrician, uh, the supply and demand statistics uh, put forward by the province of Alberta says that there's going to be an oversupply of electricians for the next five years. But however, if you picked a trade like an ironworker or boilermaker, well, in the next you know, three or four years, it's, they're going to be very high demand.
0: You know, so, it's an interesting it's point that you back. make, and can this goes back to what you've been saying about choosing the right courses. If you're going to university, do some research, find out where the work's going to be and the career's going to be for the next 20 years.
6: Oh, you absolutely have to do that. And uh, part of the challenge, of course, is that we, we know what the situation is today. We don't know what the situation will be three years from now. Um, So when you look at a place like Alberta or Western Canada, we've been a bit of a decline and a sharp decline in some places. Um, We hope it'll turn around, but we don't know for sure. Uh, But but think of this from the point of view of an 18-year-old or 20-year-old. They have to know what's going to come out in the next couple of years, but they also need to think about where they're going to be when they're 45. And that's a really serious challenge, not so much in in some of the trades, a few of the trades, but in a lot of the professions, the technology is changing so quickly mm-hmm. that the kind of work that you would do as a respiratory technologist, for example, will change dramatically as new technologies come along. And there, you might be in a, pl- a situation where you run into a great job right away, and then discover five, ten years from now, much of those, much of that work has disappeared. The artificial so intelligence. I, I is don't your envy job. the young people having to make these choices, or yeah. parents trying to do it, because yeah. we do not know what the future holds. But if you haven't looked at least for the situation right now, as Scott was saying. You know, you're going to make a you're going to make a, a, the wrong choice, or potentially make the wrong choice.
0: Scott, final word is yours.
3: Well, I just like to you know just put that
0: forward for your listeners. I hate to see somebody
3: waste four years of their life towards an apprenticeship and then find there's no job for them at the end. So
0: yeah. thank you, right? All right. Well, thank you very much for the call, uh, Scott, from Alberta, but in Brandon, Manitoba. And uh, we're time flies by. We'll have to set aside more time, Ken, for the next one we do on what do we tell our kids? I love the title. It's so important. Thanks so much for the time. You're more than welcome. I look forward to the next time. All right, Professor Ken Coates from the University of Saskatchewan, joining us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. We'll come back with the professor in the weeks ahead. We'll find another subject, or maybe we'll follow through with more on this issue of uh, uh, post-secondary education at a university or the trades. It always generates a huge amount of interest.